takes place this morning. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it tells us, And again he, that's Jesus, entered Capernaum, and after some days, and it was heard that when he was in the house, immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. And then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating at the tax collectors and the sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Father, we just humbly ask and pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would give us the grace and the help to continue now in this time of worship, and that, Lord, we could worship you even now as we sang and prayed and done other things by giving our full heart and attention to the truth of the word of God. And so, Lord, we pray for the grace and help of your spirit, that, Lord, you would take away the distractions in our minds and the weakness of our flesh and even any spiritual opposition, Lord, where the devil would seek to steal away the seed of the word of God from planting deep into our hearts and taking root and bearing fruit for your kingdom's sake and for our benefit. So, Lord, you know what that means for each one of us. Please prepare us. We want to be expectant. We believe there are things that you want to say to us by your spirit and through your word. So we ask now that you would speak in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, two similar and supporting terms, I believe, are these, to change and to transform. 
To change and to transform. To change means to make something or to make someone different. To transform, which is in some ways a complementary term, but maybe a little bit stronger, means to make a thorough and dramatic change of something or someone. And in these next two snapshots of our Lord Jesus Christ's ministry here that the Holy Spirit gives to us in our passages this morning, we see that Jesus shows his power to change lives. That Jesus can and Jesus does make people different. And I think one of the clearest signs of a person genuinely having an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ One of the clearest indications that someone has had an experience with Jesus for real is he transforms their life. Their life becomes radically different. In fact, I'm a firm believer it is impossible to have a genuine experience with Jesus and remain the same because Jesus changes us. Jesus transforms us. The Bible teaches that and the Holy Spirit reveals that to us very clearly even in these two events that we just read this morning. Look at me again back in verse 1 as the text opens. It tells us, first of all, that Jesus again entered Capernaum after some days. Now, the city of Capernaum was really what we would refer to as like a shore-like community. If you look at where it's located, it's in northern Israel, and it's right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee there in the north. And we know the city of Capernaum became Jesus' primary headquarters. So as Jesus went out about and did ministry as he traveled around Israel and different areas, it seems that Capernaum was kind of like where he set up his base of operations for his ministry work. So he would go out and teach and minister and do different things. And then as it says here in verse 1, after some days, again, he would come back to the city of Capernaum once again. And it tells us that as he came back to Capernaum, verse 1 says that it was heard that he was in the house. So Jesus' ministry popularity at this point, understand, is growing rapidly, and word spreads very quickly that Jesus has now come back to Capernaum, where he often would, and that he was back in town and in a particular house at this time. Now, verse 2 tells us, immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. So as Jesus comes, settles into this house now, very quickly, again, this is Mark's favorite word in his gospel, the immediately, something happening instantaneously, very quickly, he says, that because of the presence of Jesus and the desire to hear him give spiritual instruction from the word of God, a very large crowd now packs out this house and comes together so much so that Mark records for us, there was no longer room to receive guests any longer, not even near the doorway. So the house begins to become overflooded with people, it's overflowing to the outside this meeting. But note with me, if you would, why there was such a strong draw for this particular overcrowded meeting. Two simple things we can take note of that the people were both longing for 
And I believe that the Holy Spirit was very properly, in a natural way, drawing people to this very crowded meeting. And note what those two things were. It was very simply the presence of the Lord, and it was the instruction from God's Word. That's what was happening in this household. The reason this household became extremely crowded and this large gathering came together where they couldn't even seat or accommodate anyone any longer was, first of all, because the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. People came and gathered because they wanted to spend time with the Lord. That was the primary attraction. It wasn't other things that made it a great experience when you came to the meeting People were being drawn, and they were longing to just spend time with Jesus. They just wanted to be in the presence of the Lord, to experience his love and his power. That was the main attraction to this gathering time. And the thing Mark tells us as well in verse 1 that also was happening is it says that Jesus at that gathering preached the word to them. So there's the second thing that was prompting this overcrowded gathering, not just the presence of the Lord, but instruction from God's word. It's interesting the term that's used there, he preached the word. It's not the common term we often find in the New Testament for preaching to herald or to proclaim like an announcement. It's actually a term translated preach, but the Greek word that's used there often refers to utilizing common language to explain something. And the term word there that's used, it's the logos in the Greek, and that's reference to the written word of God. So what's being described here is Jesus was giving a Bible study. Jesus was using the logos, the written word of God, and he in common understandable language was just explaining truths from the word of God. He was giving spiritual instruction from the scriptures, teaching people about God and about spiritual life. And look at this, how beautiful to see this example of ministry happening as God intends. This is the way God would operate a meeting. As the Holy Spirit is drawing people, they're being drawn because they want to spend time with the Lord and they want to receive instruction from the word of God. And as Jesus is conducting a meeting, that's exactly what's happening. And look, I can't help but to say by way of application, even as Jesus was directing that meeting, the last I read in my New Testament, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the head of the church, the chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And I can't help but to wonder if we're honoring the headship of Jesus and letting him direct his church, if that would not be the model of ministry that he desires for most is that what would draw people to gatherings that if in a purest sense, what would cause people to overflow and, and pack out a gathering, it would simply be that the presence of the Lord himself and instruction from the word of God and spiritual explanation from the scriptures would be the primary drawing thing. Would to God how beautiful it would be today if that's what people desired, if that's what grew, drew Christians to gathering times, those simple but absolutely very vital and wonderful thing if we would let the Holy Spirit draw people for those very reasons. Now, though Jesus did perform miracles of healing and liberating people from demonic possession, right? We've seen that in chapter one already. Notice that Jesus' foremost ministry activity when people assembled with him is what? 
Verse 2 tells us he instructed people in the word of God. Why? Because Jesus knew that the scripture has power to change people's lives. One of the most long-term differences that will come into anyone's life is going to come by God's supernatural inspired word being planted into people's hearts and the incorruptible seed of God's word and the power of God's word. Hearing that truth is what sets people free from error. It's what strengthens people in doing what's right. It's what gives a lamp under their feet and a light under their path. And Jesus knew as God himself, the author of the word of God, what brings the most benefit to the hearts and minds of people, especially long-term benefit. And that is the power of God's word. Psalm 19 tells us the law of the Lord converts the soul. And that the law of the Lord enlightens the eyes. If you want a lengthy read, if you're struggling with sleeping at night, instead of checking your phone, read Psalm 119, longest psalm in the entire Bible. And guess what it's all about? The word of God, the value of God's word, the benefit of God's word, all the things that God's word does to revive our hearts and give us wisdom and to kind of emphasize the importance of the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, of course, we know that's all scripture given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That means beneficial, valuable. It brings a profitable thing in our souls. And he says profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, that's to, in a sense, challenge me when my heart is wrong or my view is wrong or my behavior is wrong. It reproves me. And then it doesn't just tell me I'm wrong. Also for correction, once it shows me I'm wrong, it shows me how to make things right. And it guides me how to then correct and to make changes that I need and for instruction in righteousness. And then again, Hebrews 4.12 of the power and value of God's word, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, meaning the difference between what's soulish and emotional and is just my feelings or my thoughts and what is truly of my spirit, the eternal spiritual part of me. And sometimes that's kind of complicated, isn't it? Sometimes we're dealing with thoughts or we have feelings and, and we're trying to distinguish you know, which is which here? Well, the word of God, like a surgical sword, can go in and can help us to discern the difference. This is soulish, Tony. This, this is your emotions. These are your thoughts, but this is not what's true spiritually. And sometimes we need to be able to distinguish that so that we're not led by our thoughts or guided by our emotions, but that we're guided by the spirit of the Lord and the power of God's word is able to be a discerner, it says, of the thoughts and intents of our heart. So Jesus here, I love to see this picture as he's guiding this meeting. He realized the proclamation, the explanation and instruction from the word is what the people needed. Now watch what begins to unfold in this Bible study Jesus is leading now in this home. Verse 3, it says, And then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. So we're introduced now to this group of men who are greatly concerned for their friend because of his condition. But notice, they're not just greatly concerned for their friend, they're also very confident that Jesus has the power to do what? Change his life. 
They're very confident that if they can just get their friend connected to Jesus, that Jesus has the power to transform his condition. And so out of loving concern for him, they bring their friend. And notice their friend, it tells us verse 3, this man being carried was a paralytic, which means that he was suffering from a broken condition in his body. His body was not working properly. And as a paralytic, his body lacked power. He was unable not only perhaps to walk, but he was unable to, we might say, change his own condition. He's paralyzed in his present situation. He has no power within himself to make changes in his life. He's stuck in his situation, and he can't change himself. He can't resolve his own situation. Yet his friends know the power of Jesus to change lives and to powerfully transform people because they've been witnessing and seeing it all around Israel. Maybe a few of them, perhaps, who knows, may have encountered the power of the Lord to change their own life. And their love for their friend, notice, leads them, take notice in verse 3, not just to pray for him, but to actually do a few practical things in love and servanthood to do what they can to assist him, to do whatever it took to get their friend connected to Jesus. And I'm not saying there's anything not valuable about praying, but sometimes there is a step beyond praying for someone to bring them into connection to the Lord that sometimes we're to do as well. And these friends represent that. They're willing to do whatever it took. Here they are carrying him to Jesus. Now, I can't help but to wonder sometimes. I just you know, tend to do so. I, I wonder about the dialogues of what goes on in these situations and the, you know, at times wanting to hear the conversation, them trying to talk to him. And you know if he's anything like us, there's probably that sense of reluctancy. Look, just we'll carry you. Oh, that's embarrassing, man. That'll be so humbling. Everybody's going to stare at me if I go to that meeting. If you're carrying me there... And as they're talking, listen, if you, trust us. If you just encountered, he will change you, man. He has the power to do it. He loves people. And we believe that he's compassionate. And if we just bring you to him and you just connect with him, I'm telling you, he'll do everything for you. He'll do, all you got to do is just meet him. All you get, and, and I wonder if there was this dialogue and, and them expressing their heart towards him. And who knows, maybe him as well, though initially reluctant, coming to a place where he realizes, you know what, I am sick and tired of being stuck in this condition. And if you're telling me that he can change me, okay, I'm, I'm willing to humble myself. I'm pretty hopeless at this point. I'm in desperation, and perhaps he himself has his heart begin to be stirred with faith, and he's, there's this sense of expectancy, and they agree to do it as a group. Okay, if you guys will carry me, I'm willing. I'm willing to humble myself. And I'm willing to believe with you that if we go there, that he's going to work in my life and that he has power to change me. And verse 4 goes on to say, and when they could not come near Jesus because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had then broken through, isn't that a beautiful picture, a breakthrough? When they had broken through, sometimes that's what it takes, a breakthrough in prayer, a breakthrough of effort to work with someone who needs change. When they had broken through, they then let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. So this shows the determination of this group of friends to do absolutely whatever it took to get their friend in contact with the Lord. They ran into a clear obstacle with the crowd. People can't even get into the house for this Bible study. They now show up 
with their friend carrying him on this map. And notice, they don't get discouraged by the obstacles. They don't let the hindrance initially or the obstacle discourage their desire. They wanted to see their friend come into contact with Jesus. So they say, you know what? What do we got to do? Let's keep going. This is important. His life needs help. And so whatever it takes, let's not get discouraged. And they persevere. They don't get discouraged because there's not instantaneously. They just keep pressing forward and looking for avenues and options and they go up, it says, onto the roof. Now, again, understand, in that day, the, the, the roofs of homes typically were flat. That was the way that they built. And a lot of times, the roof area of a home in ancient Israel was kind of like a patio area where they would go up and they would enjoy the fresh breeze a little bit. And it was in another portion of the house. Sometimes there was a ladder from within the home up to the flat roof area. Other times, a stairway outside. So they find their way up to this roof, which would be made of kind of slatted boards and then dried mud and straw. So it would be very easy, as you can understand, then to dig through as they had kind of like baked mud and straw over the roof. And they start digging this hole so they can lower their friend down in front of the Lord, believing that Jesus will be moved with compassion when he sees this man in desperate need being lowered before him. Now, again, can you imagine the scene of the events? They get to the house. They see the crowd. Look, we've got to do something. The roof, man. Maybe if we can get him up to the roof, we, you know, we could dig through the roof. Dig through the roof. Man, this is somebody's property. Imagine this poor guy hosting the Bible study. And you're worried about hosting a home fellowship? Guy needs a new roof afterwards. And here they just, well, we could just get them up to the roof. We can dig a hole. And then imagine they're, you know, they're digging this hole through the roof. And are they perhaps wondering and questioning the whole time what's going to be thought? And imagine being on the inside here. Jesus is teaching a Bible study like we're doing this morning. And all of a sudden, just stuff starts falling through in the middle of the room, getting on people's heads and in their eyes. And just a complete disruption of this whole thing going on here, wondering what's happening, the reactions of people. They dig this hole, and they literally, it says, verse 4, they lower him down as they break through right there in front of Jesus. And verse 5 says that when Jesus saw their faith, now hit the pause button there. When Jesus saw their faith, Jesus seeing this helpless man and his determined friends willing to do what they were doing, Digging a hole in a roof, disrupting a meeting, lowering it down, it says that Jesus perceived this was being driven by their faith. And he realized, man, this guy and those guys up there must really believe that I have power to help him. They must really believe that I have enough compassion in my heart that I would be willing to stop what I'm doing and to address this man, they truly believe Jesus could and would powerfully help and change this man's life. And when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus recognized their faith, notice that's what he rewards. He rewards their faith, not their diligent efforts to do the work of digging through the roof. What he rewards here is the faith. It says, when he saw their faith, verse 5, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, again, I can't help but to wonder 
if as Jesus is, is watching this man be lowered down and he sees their faith, and, and look, I, this is my personal perception. I don't believe he's just referring to the faith of the four men. Some commentators believe that. It just says there, that's plural. I don't see Jesus rewarding the faith of other people and forgiving someone else's sins. What I see Jesus is saying, man, they've got a ton of faith, and wow, you've got a ton of faith because you let them bring you here humbly and were willing to subject yourself to this humbling experience and come here and be lowered in front of me not knowing what I'm going to say. So Jesus, I believe, sees the faith of the man as well, that he's expectant that Jesus is going to help him. And Jesus, notice, seeing their faith brings about this interesting proclamation, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, were the guys up above thinking, no, his legs, he's paralyzed, or he would have walked in. But Jesus knew of his physical health problem, but what was Jesus' greatest concern? His spiritual need. That was the greatest concern of Jesus. He kindly assures this man of the forgiveness of all of his sins that is guilt removed, and Jesus' first priority was to do what for this man? To liberate his soul to do what was necessary to heal his inward life and change his eternal destiny. That was the top concern of Jesus. Look, the Bible teaches that everyone is sinful and we all have guilt in our soul before the Lord. And being sinful from birth because of what we've inherited, all of us from Adam, we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and our sins. And you might fairly say disconnected from the power of God, the life of God, and we are all like paralyzed spiritually in our, in our sinful, dead condition before God originally. None of us has power to change our life. None of us have power to, in a sense, make ourselves right with God. We need help from outside of ourselves, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, to not only have our sins forgiven, but to have our life changed and to receive the power of God to be able to have a relationship with God, to be able to know God, to have eternal life. And that comes through an encounter and an experience with the Savior who is Jesus. Right? The Bible tells us they were to call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And this is exactly what we see happening here. How wonderful because of who Jesus is, and what Jesus has accomplished in his sinless life, in his sacrificial death on the cross, taking punishment for our sins in our place, and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension back into heaven, that he alone, the Lord Jesus Christ, no man, no pastor, no priest, no human being, Jesus Christ alone can say with the authority of heaven, your sins are forgiven you. And let me say to you, I believe that's the greatest miracle in the story. That Jesus is able, as the Son of God, to say to any human being, I see your faith in me and that you're trusting me and you know what I can do for you as the Son of God and the Savior, and so I assure you, your sins are forgiven you. And look, even if no other earthly change happens in our life, or nothing temporal changes in our present earthly existence, how wonderful to still know that it is well with our soul. And to at least know our sins are forgiven us, that God's not angry at us, 
that God's not looking to punish us, that in fact God is for you and he has an eternal home and destiny awaiting you where then everything does become right that's all wrong here on this earth. And how wonderful that Jesus would speak into this man's soul and say such a thing as he says to all of us, your sins are forgiven you. Now verse 6 says some of the scribes who were sitting there, the other accounts tell us some Pharisees, other religious leaders were there as well, reasoning in their hearts. And they were saying, verse 7, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So some leaders from the established religious community are present, and notice they're greatly bothered by what Jesus has just done. It tells us in Mark's account here, the scribes were present. Those were those who meticulously hand-copied the scripture. No printing press in that day. Scribes would hand-copy letter by letter, word by word, the scripture. So these men knew the content of the scriptures well, and though they didn't say it outwardly, the Bible tells us they were reasoning internally with criticism over what the Lord Jesus was doing. Look at it there in verse 7. Here's what they were internally being critical about. Why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they were correct theologically. They truly were. Only God alone, as I just said a moment ago, has the power to forgive sins. That's correct theologically. And it is important that we remember that people cannot absolve other people of the guilt of their sin. Sin is against God alone. David has said against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Our sins affect other people, but our sin, all of it, is directly against a holy, almighty God, the creator who we stand accountable to. And so we're guilty before God, and we all deserve punishment from God as judge, so the only one who can forgive and has the right and authority to forgive sin is God himself. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 43, I, yes, I alone, God declares, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and never think upon them again. So important to understand. No person can confer forgiveness by proxy to another person. That is horrible blasphemy in and of itself, and it is horrible theology. No person can confer forgiveness only God can forgive sin. They were right in that sense, understanding from Scripture, but yet the problem was they weren't believing that Jesus was who? God, right? That's why they're so angered. That's why they say here, what is this man doing speaking blasphemies? He can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. They see Jesus committing a capital crime blasphemy against holy God, claiming that he has power to forgive sins. Now, the scribes, just like the Pharisees and priests, though religious leaders, they were blinded because of their devotion to a religious system and all of its rituals, and they were very ingrained in a system and traditions of religious worship, but they were so ingrained in their religious system, they refused to see the realities of who Jesus really was. This was the great problem. It tells us in John chapter 5 that Jesus said to them, the very works that I'm doing testify that the Father in heaven has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one that he sent. 
you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Were they religious? Extremely, extremely. They diligently read the word of God. They diligently studied the scriptures. They did religious routines and rituals. But Jesus said, you're missing the point behind the page. In fact, more he's saying you're missing the person behind the page. You're missing to see that that whole book talks about me and that you refuse to come to me and see me as God. The reason Jesus could pronounce your sins are forgiven to you, we know, is because Jesus was God. This is Jesus showing that he's God and that he alone has the power to forgive sins. Now look at verse 8. But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned this way within themselves, he then said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Notice Jesus didn't need to hear them say these things out loud. Jesus could see what was transpiring inside of their hearts, and truthfully, what people say out loud or what people do outwardly is really not the primary concern of Jesus because Jesus sees what's going on inside of people's hearts. And Jesus knows what's true about every one of us because he knows what's happening inside of our hearts, and that is what is most accurate of our condition. And here Jesus is concerned about their heart condition and their way of reasoning in the same way he's concerned about my and your heart condition and our reasoning, especially when our ways of reasoning are wrong. That is, if we're confused or if we're blinded or if we're deceived spiritually or in any other way, Jesus wants to address our wrong reasoning. And verse 9, he goes on to say, which is easier to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. So wanting to help everyone present in that meeting, seeing this as a teachable moment, and often Jesus saw things in that way as a teachable moment, wanting to teach the general attendees that are all there in the, in the household, the confused religious leaders, the man in need, his disciples. He lays out this logical line of reasoning, which is very provable, something that could be tested. And he says, look, which is really easier to say? Think about it. He says, logically, which would be easier for you to validate if what I'm saying is true? If I say to you, your sins are forgiven you, there's no outward proof of that. We can't see inside of someone else's heart like God can to know, are their sins forgiven or not? You can't visually see that. But Jesus said, or would it be easier, since you don't believe what's going on here, for you to test and validate if I'm God and the power of God is coming from my life to proclaim forgiveness of sins, would it be easier for you to test if I say to this paralyzed man, rise, pick up your bed and walk out of this house. And Jesus knew that would be something where it was very evident and provable because if he told a paralyzed man, get up and walk, and he didn't, he's a fraud. And you can measure the evidence. This man saying something with his mouth, is the power of God behind that or not? They could prove by whether or not the paralyzed man got up. You can't fake telling someone paralyzed to get up and walk out of the house. 
Now, with that presented to them, verse 10, Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Now, I can't help but to wonder, was Jesus already intending to heal this man anyway, and this is just the way the events unfolded, or did those stinky little scribes and Pharisees give this guy a two-for-one? Right? Where, man, oh, I get so upset when people criticize me. Well, this, this critical attitude's got this guy a double blessing. Jesus says here, I want you to know that I am God and I have the power to forgive sin. Therefore, I'm going to do this outward miracle and miraculously heal this paralyzed man that you may see, that you can know, that you have absolute evidence that the power of God is coming through my life and through my words. So I am going to do this miracle of his body to assure the healing of his soul is an absolutely certain thing. And so that you have measurable evidence. Notice, Jesus wants people to see and know that he is God. He wants people to know that because he wants people to honor him and serve him and worship him accordingly. And Jesus also wanted everyone to understand that he had power to forgive sin. And you know what, folks? I think those two things matter to Jesus very much still to this day. He wants people to know that he's God. He's not a religious leader. He's not your church mascot. He's God. And he deserves to be honored as God and worshiped as God and served as God. And Jesus wants us all to know as well that he has the power to forgive sin. That no matter what you've done in your life, in your past, some failure, some stain of guilt, no matter what you're struggling with presently, that if your trust is in Jesus Christ as the Savior and the one who accomplished what was necessary for the forgiveness of sins through his life, death, and resurrection, that you would know that he has the power, no matter how you feel about your sins, that he has the power to say your sins are forgiven. You're not guilty anymore. You're cleansed, you're washed, you're freed. And no matter what you feel or what anyone says, he wants us to know of his power to forgive our sins, that we would rest in that. Verse 12 says, immediately hearing this, he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. So Jesus, by his authoritative power, brings, look, instantaneously, immediately again, instantaneously. This wasn't therapy. This wasn't group sessions. Immediately, the power of Jesus speaks into this man's life, and he's instantaneously transformed. His life is changed instantaneously. As the power of Jesus encounters his life, he is miraculously healed, and this man's life is changed, and he is in a brand new state. Not only physically, but Jesus did the same mighty work in him internally. The outward miracle, again, was just representative to assure and prove of the inward change of condition as well. And Jesus immediately heals this man. How wonderful to know, again, the Bible tells us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means that he still has the power and he still has the desire to compassionately help and change the lives of people. No matter how long they've been stuck in a condition 
no matter how absolutely paralyzed they are and unable to change, that Jesus can change people's lives. And when they saw this, verse 12 says, they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never seen anything like this. So as the people witnessed the power of God flow instantaneously to change this man's life, notice the end result, the onlookers observing this powerful life change, they were astonished and they said, this is, this is God. There's no way that man could have changed. This is the power of God. And they said, we've never seen anything like this. And what did they do? It says they glorified God. Again, notice, when the Spirit of God and Jesus, the Son of God, is conducting ministry, do you see who's glorified on the back end? God. No person. People aren't excited or thrilled about an individual. They're glorifying God. All the attention goes upon God. People want to worship God. They're excited about God. That's the resulting fruit. Verse 13 says, And then Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the multitudes came to him. And you know by now, what did he do when the multitudes came? He taught them. He taught them. Again, Jesus seeks to use his primary time with people, teaching and instructing them things that were important for them to know. Chapter 10 of Mark's gospel is going to tell us this. Again, the crowds of people came to Jesus, and as was his custom, he taught them. Again, the Bible reveals this was the custom. This was the pattern of an all-knowing God showing us the valuable way to minister, as was his custom. Jesus taught the people because, again, he knew that was their deepest need that they would hear the voice of the Lord, that they would know the truth of God. And look, the voice of the Lord is heard through the word of the Lord or through the word of God. And Jesus' voice is powerful. The voice of the Lord, when a person hears it, is life-changing. It's a powerful influence. That's what this next event shows to us, the powerful voice of the Lord. Look at verse 14. As Jesus passed by... He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So Jesus sees this man, again, remember, he can look into people's hearts. He knows everything about him, and now he calls this man to become his follower. Verse 14 here tells us that his name was Levi. He's also referred to in another gospel as Matthew, meaning the writer of Matthew's gospel. But here he's referred to as Levi. Very likely, Matthew was his first name, and he's likely referred to here as Levi, indicating his connection to the tribe of Levi. Very, very likely, because Matthew's gospel, who I believe is also referred to as Levi, has more references to the Old Testament scriptures and Old Testament Mosaic law than any of the other gospels. Now, this makes a lot of sense. This is probably Matthew, the gospel writer, who's potentially, likely, from the tribe of Levi, which, remember, was the chosen tribe from Israel to do what? Be the workers in the house of God. It's the tribe from which the priests came from. So very likely, Matthew or Levi had a religious upbringing and was being trained to be a temple worker or maybe even a priest, but became disillusioned by all the hypocrisy that he saw in the present established religious system, and maybe because of that hypocrisy he saw, 
he turned as far away from his spiritual heritage as he possibly could. And he took on the most carnal life that he possibly could imagine. That's what the Bible tells us here. And when it tells us in verse 14, he was a tax collector working at the tax office. Again, tax collectors were greatly despised in the nation of Israel. They were hated because they were seen as crooks and traitors. The Roman government had conquered Israel and were oppressing the Jews and imposing heavy taxation upon them. Tax collectors were the enforcers of those who would gather the tax money from the Jewish people in that day. You would bid for the job of being a tax collector at the tax office because it was a very lucrative opportunity. The way it worked was simply this. There was a set quota known to you as the tax collector, but not known to the common people that you were to collect in taxes, a quota for the Roman government. Anything you could deceive, rob, destroy, kill, and murderously suck out of the life of the people by adding your commission on, when you with a Roman soldier behind you enforced taxation upon them, that was how you made your money as a tax collector. So if you really were supposed to collect $5 from each person, if you could get 7 10 12 20 whatever it was, you get the idea, whatever they could deceive people into giving greedily and, and, and lucratively trying to line their pockets, that was how a tax collector made their money. Now, because of this, not only that they represented the Roman Empire, but because they were known, I mean, it was a known occupation of crooks and swindlers and those who just would abuse and take advantage of people for their own selfish gain, known to be greedy and corrupt, they were perceived, you have to get the picture in your mind, tax collectors were perceived as the lowlifes in society. People disdained them. They hated them because of what they didn't represent it. Now, it tells us there, verse 14, Jesus passed by and he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting there as a tax collector so Jesus sees this man, picture this, he sees this man wasting his life in absolute selfishness. He sees this man squandering his life, dishonoring God, maybe at this point hating God and hating people. And Jesus seeing him in his history and his condition graciously decides to turn his whole life around. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're an absolute loser. Everyone thinks you're a loser. Perfect. I'm going to choose you to follow me and be one of my laborers. You want to talk about radical grace? Jesus says, I'll take you in that condition. And I'll turn your whole life around, and I'm actually going to do something marvelous with it. And he puts forth this call on this man's life, and he says two words with great authority. Look at him there. He says to him very simply, follow me. Two words, follow me, but the power and authority of the voice of Jesus, follow means that you allow someone else to lead. Follow means you're not in control anymore. Follow means you don't direct your own life. Follow means you're in charge. Wherever you go, I'll let you take the lead. Whatever you want to do, I'm going to stay close enough to you to let you be in complete control to direct where I'm going, that's what it means to follow. And Jesus said, follow me. He didn't say follow a religious system. He didn't say follow the local priest, follow the local scribe. Jesus said, follow me. That's all I want you to do. I don't want you to follow a religious system. I just want you to follow me, to just let me lead your life and guide your life and direct your life 
And look at this man's response in verse 14. It says, he arose and followed him. The other gospel accounts tell us that Levi, it says this, left all and followed Jesus. He heard those two words of Jesus, and it so powerfully worked in his life with a receptive heart desiring change, because you know he was miserable. He was maybe more miserable than a paralytic because he was paralyzed on the inside, being sick and tired of being sick and tired and keeping an outward front and being miserable in his guilt and his rebellion and his anger and his hatred and all that. And Jesus says two words, and with a receptive heart wanting change, it says he left all and he followed him. And look, let's remind ourselves this morning, embracing Jesus' call, following Jesus' plan, always includes leaving things behind. Think about what he left behind. Cha-ching, cha-ching. Seriously. This guy left some serious money behind. He left power behind. He left influence behind. He left his ability to govern and direct his whole life behind. But he understood part of following Jesus means I don't know all the details of the future. Jesus didn't say, follow me. And let me tell you what will happen next week and next month. And then this is how this is going to work. And, and well, if I follow you right now, I already had these plans in motion. Jesus says, who cares? You follow me. You'll find out tomorrow what tomorrow holds and next week and next. And, and he had to set aside his desires, his plans, his ambitions. He had to surrender in a sense all that he had willing to choose to surrender to follow Jesus. And I tell you folks, that will always be a part of following Jesus if you truly want to follow Jesus. At times, Jesus will call us to follow him in ways where we have to surrender our will, give up our life, our plans, our fears, our concerns, our ambitions, our ideals, our dreams, and in faith say, you know what, Lord? I don't know anything, but I can do those two things. Follow you. And then whatever you want to do with my life. And sometimes the thing, sadly, that keeps us from following Jesus is we're not willing to leave certain things behind sometimes. We're not willing to let go of an idea or a dream or security. Or, and, and he publicly responds and leaves it all behind. Look, the, I believe the call of Jesus still goes out constantly. Jesus calls people to follow him. Levi arose. He chose to follow. And look what happens. As he was dining in Levi's house, Jesus, many tax collectors and sinners, all of his buddies now come over for dinner. They sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and now they followed him. So Levi's changed life does what? Has a ripple effect upon other people's lives being changed. This is how people often follow Jesus, one life at a time. Levi says, I want to throw a feast to honor you, Lord, and I'm going to invite all my buddies over. I know lots of scumbags just like me. And he invites them over and they spend time with Jesus. And it says that one by one, they, they decide to follow him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees, here's our religious leaders again. Remember the Pharisees were the strict adherents to the traditions of the Mishnah and the Talmud, the oral traditions of the law. I mean, they were strict adherents. They abandoned anyone who didn't participate in things that they did. They saw Jesus. Now he's eating with tax collectors and sinners these ungodly people, and they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats with tax collectors and sinners? Now, again, I'm not from that portion, but I almost have that 
like valley girl voice. Oh my gosh. I can't believe who he's hanging out with. Doesn't he know? I thought he was spiritual. Thought he was godly. Right? But Jesus knew these people needed him, and it's just their critical spirit that's getting in their way. Because look how Jesus answers, verse 17. Our text concludes saying, When Jesus heard, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus becoming aware of his disciples being challenged over what he's doing, he hears them criticizing his workers, his disciples, and he decides, I'm going to have to address this myself. And he interjects to clarify what matters to God's heart, and that is this, that healthy people, he says, just like physically, healthy people don't need physicians. It's the sick people that need physicians. And he now pictures himself like a great physician spiritually, and he pictures humanity like unhealthy patients. And as the physician, Jesus wants to help people whose lives are sick and struggling and are damaged and need healing and restoration. And he likens people to patients. And he says those who are well, they're not the ones who need a physician. And I think when he likens it, those who are well, you might say spiritually, are people who think that their lives are fine. People who don't see their spiritual condition. They're self-righteous. They don't think they have an issue. They're like the sick patient who's denying that they're ill. Or they're the person perhaps who maybe they've already been made well. But Jesus says, that's not who I came to help. Those who are either well, literally, spiritually, they've become well in their soul, or those who are just so self-righteous, like you religious leaders and all you self-righteous folks who don't think that you need help spiritually, he says, that's not who I came to help. In fact, he would say, I can't help people in that condition because they're too proud. They're too arrogant. But Jesus says, I've come to help those who know that they're sinful. I didn't come to call righteous people who think everything's all right. I came to call people who know that they're sinners, who know that they're broken, who know that they have a need in their life. And he said, I came to call them to change, to repentance, he says, to change lives. And how wonderful that Jesus has that heart for people coming to offer his power to help people become different. You know, it's often been said before, what an incredible and rare physician Jesus is. Think about it. He knows every patient perfectly, all our issues. And no matter how bad we are, he can heal any person's condition completely. And he even pays the bill. Woo! Imagine that. Let's stand and pray together.